It's funny, I probably should have asked you all to take your shoes off uh, before you came in this morning, because today as we come to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, metaphorically it's as if we're about to walk onto holy ground. That's how precious this chapter is. And it reminded me this week, every week that I've had the privilege of, of teaching in the Gospel of John, I felt this sort of weightiness to it and this unworthiness to be able to, uh, to be up here and to teach because the Gospel of John is so fundamental to what we believe as Christians. And so I'm well aware every week that I've got to be very, very careful not to fall into error and certainly not to mislead anybody in this church. So now we come to this amazing chapter, chapter 17, with all of its mystery and all of its lofty theology, and it's almost paralyzing for a preacher. You, you start to think, how can I possibly even do this justice? As Paul said, who is adequate for these things? That's the way I feel this morning. And I know I've said this before, but it's a fact. When you're, when you're a preacher and you begin to say uh, with the council of your elders, we're going to preach through this book, you right away start to think about certain chapters that you're really excited about getting to. You're already thinking down the road. So for me and John, it was chapter 3, and then chapter 8, and then chapter 14, and here today in chapter 17. Because this, this is where the curtain sort of gets pulled back. And it's as if we're being ushered into the Holy of Holies to, to see this council of the Trinitarian persons. Think about this. God praying to God. Think about that. I witness to God praying to God. Yahweh on earth in flesh praying to Yahweh in the heavenly realms. This is an amazing chapter of scripture. In fact, this is why many of the greatest scholars in Christian history have called this the holiest ground in the entire Bible, the most remarkable portion of the most extraordinary book ever written down. That's what we get to do beginning this morning. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, once testified that it was studying John 17 that brought him to salvation and then solidified his view of reformed theology. And on his deathbed, he actually told his wife, he said, study this chapter above all others. He said, go read where I first cast my anchor. It was that important to him. So all that to say, I couldn't be more excited about arriving here uh, this morning, and I'm painfully aware, and you should be as well, that, that we have to work really hard this morning and over the next three Sundays to apprehend all that the Holy Spirit has for us in this chapter. But it's going to be a good work. Amen? All right. Now, sometimes this chapter is referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Anybody heard that, that term? As far as we can tell, the first person to use that title takes us into early church history with a man named Clement of Alexandria who I think rightfully saw in this passage that Jesus, as he prays, is functioning like an ancient Jewish high priest would. Remember what, what the role of a, of, of a priest was in Israel. Prophets spoke from God to man, but priests were to represent man before Yahweh. That was their role. So they would provide intercessory prayer for the people, number one. And then number two, bring a blood sacrifice, an offering to the Lord, as a means of satisfying God's wrath for sin. And as we work our way through this chapter, we're going to see Jesus do both of those things. He is going to consecrate himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and then he's going to enter into intercessory prayer, first for the 11 disciples who are with him on that night, but then extend that to every generation of believers who will come to trust in him. And this is what makes... John 17, so precious for us. The idea that you and I were being prayed for by the Son of God, that 
on that night, 2,000 years ago, we were in his view. Makes it very monumental for us as believers today. What's amazing about this chapter is that Jesus' words aren't all that complex. Sometimes we think when we pray, we've got to be super you know, fluffy and complex and theological. We've got to formulate all this stuff together. But what Jesus says is very straightforward here. It's not the lofty verbiage you might expect from a divine being as he prays. His words are somehow simple, and yet still they blow our minds. He's going to touch on a whole bunch of themes that we've already seen in the Gospel of John. Let me give you a few things just as a preview of some of the topics that he's going to cover in this prayer. Obviously, he's going to talk about the oneness and the communion that he has with his Father. And he's done that throughout the Gospel of John, right? Constantly talking about his relationship to the Father. So we get a glimpse into the Trinity itself in this chapter. We're going to see Jesus' earthly mission, which was to glorify the Father. That continues in this chapter. We're going to see multiple references to sovereign election in this chapter. As I mentioned, is why John Knox found this chapter so important to his Reformed theology. We're going to see information about the two states of Christ, both his, what we call his humiliation down here on the earth and also his exaltation back to the right hand of the Father. We're going to see him talk about the choosing of the disciples from out of the world. We're going to hear about his mission of the gospel. We're going to hear about the nature of eternal life. And we'll see this huge emphasis. This will be a big emphasis for us down the road of Jesus calling the church to be one, to be unified as, 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 a, as a single body for the sake of our testimony in the world. And then catch this, we're going to hear language that indicates that the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, believers are in both the Father and the Son, and the Son is in believers. So all kinds of indwelling language in this prayer as well. And above all else, and we need to start here, we cannot forget that all of this prayer, everything we're about to read in this chapter, it, it, it's all said with the looming shadow of the cross. And even though the cross isn't specifically named, everything flows from that picture. Everything flows from where Jesus is now headed in just a matter of hours. So if you haven't grabbed your Bible yet, let's go to John 17. Working this week, praise the Lord. Good. All right, John 17. As you're turning there, let's remember... At this point in the narrative, Judas's betrayal is in full swing. It has been put in motion. There's no doubt that even as Jesus prays, the soldiers are rallying and they're going to go out into Jerusalem to locate him and to arrest him as an enemy of the Jewish state. Let's also remember how the previous chapter ended, chapter 16. Remember, in the upper room on that last night, and as they walk together towards the Mount of Olives, Jesus has been giving his disciples a whole series of promises about what things are going to look like once he's taken away, once he returns to his Father. Remember, he had not, he'd promised them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the Spirit of God to be with you. He had promised them this ongoing, abiding relationship with God. He had promised them answered prayer. And he promised them transcending peace. But remember, he also promised him, them what? Tribulation and trouble for a little while, sorrow and grief during this pilgrim journey on the earth. But in the end, his command, and this is how we ended last Sunday, his command was simple, take courage and be glad. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Take courage and be glad. I have secured the victory over sin, over death, over the prince of this world. And my victory is your victory. And that's how we ended uh, last chapter. Now, on this night, in order to bring about, remember, that outcome was sealed. 
Jesus claims the victory even before he gets to the cross. That's how certain the outcome is. But now in order to get to that certain outcome, it's time for the passion. It's time for his suffering to begin. So what does Jesus do facing all of this pain and suffering? He goes to prayer. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, or he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Wow. So let's start this morning by talking about Jesus and prayer. It's not unusual to see Jesus praying in the Bible. We have quite a few examples of this. Um, But we don't have a lot of examples where we know exactly what he prayed for. Many prayers where the words, the conversation is not recorded for us. We can't read it. We can't reflect on it. But we can hear in chapter 17. We know from the so-called Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 that Jesus took the time at one point to teach the disciples how to pray. And we know that he spent extended amounts of time by himself praying. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, Before choosing his 12 disciples, we read this. He went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. How many of you guys would love to hear that prayer? Like, give me that, the text of that prayer. He spent the whole night before he made this monumental decision of choosing the disciples in prayer to God. And it appears that was his standard practice in his prayers, right? He withdrew and he prayed alone, having very precious, special Uh, communion with his father in heaven interestingly there's nowhere in scripture where jesus prays with his disciples and by that i mean the way we often do where we go around the circle and we all pray a little bit there's no place in scripture where jesus prays and then says you guys pray with me or you guys join into this prayer that's not given to us anywhere in the bible so the content of most of his prayers are not given to us but there are specific times in the Gospels, where he intentionally prays out loud. For his purpose is he publicly and out loud prays for the benefit of those around him. And I'll give you two examples of this. Um, Back when Jesus uh, uh, was going to feed the 5,000 people on that hillside above the Sea of Galilee, he publicly blessed the five loaves and the two fish that he had before he began to multiply them. That's one example. Then in John 11, we studied this this very public, very intentional prayer at the raising of Lazarus. In fact, I'll put it on the screen. It says, Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. So there's no doubt about the communion between the Father and the Son. But because of the people standing around, I said this, so that they may believe that you sent me. So it's very intentional, right? This explains why he does this at certain times. So that people who are in the audience at that moment can hear, they can learn, they can sense this connection between him and his father. They can see a a glimpse of his glory as he raises the dead or he feeds the 5,000 and that they might believe. 
And so that's what we want to do in our study of John 17. So we're going to look at two things this morning. First of all, some of the amazing, lofty, incomprehensible theology in the first five verses. And then we're going to look at, okay, what can we learn from Jesus's prayer that we can then follow in that example and pray likewise? Does that make sense? So let's go back to verse one and let's start by, we'll start into this process of seeing just how sovereign God is in this. Verse one, Jesus spoke these things, and I think that's a reference to all he had said that night, right? He spoke these things and lifting up his eyes, right? So he, it's, and we'll talk about this later, this seamless transition from teaching and fellowship straight into prayer, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Look at that phrase, the hour. How many times in the gospel did we see Jesus say to his guys, slow down, my hour has not yet come? Constantly, right? Many, many times. Slow it down. Jesus is very dialed in to God's sovereign timetable, all of the steps leading up to the cross. And often he's saying, slow down, but now he finally says it. The hour has come. And as he says that, we've got to understand the precipice that they're on in terms of history, in terms of, in terms of all of the ages. This is the event of the ages, right? This is the hour determined, first of all, before the foundations of the world were laid. Back in the eternal decree among the council of the Trinitarian persons, this hour was set, and now it's come. Now it's happened, right? This is the moment of the ages where the Son of God will make atonement for human sin. I mean, name me a more important moment in history than that. This is the moment where, where the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures will come to pass. All the types, all the symbols. This is the moment where Jesus is going to render that old covenant obsolete. This is the moment where the need for a sacrificial system goes away. The need for the temple in Jerusalem is abolished. This is the moment where the new covenant is about to be ushered in. This is literally the triumph over sin, death, and the prince of this world. All happening in this moment. This is the hour upon which the eternal destiny of every human being born into this world would be adjudicated in this moment. This was the hour that Jesus came for, and he knew it as he began to pray. So we have to understand the weightiness of this time, of this moment when Jesus says, this is the hour. Now, let's get into the rest of theological meat here because it only gets more stunning. Father, the hour has come Listen to this now. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And believe it or not, there is so much happening in just that first phrase of this first sentence of the prayer. And it starts with, we talked about this a little bit last week, with the idea that, first of all, Jesus calls God Father, or in Hebrew, Abba. He comes to him with that address, right? Now, what you hear in that term, Abba, is intimacy and fellowship and real affection, as I mentioned last Sunday, this was not normal for Judaism in the first century. Uh, the average Jewish person would never dream of approaching Yahweh directly or coming to him in such a familiar way. And the only reason we're used to doing that today, and it's a great privilege we should never forget, is because Jesus has opened the way for us to do this. He opened up the veil, didn't he? He, he, he tore away that veil so that the Holy of Holies would, would, would open up and be exposed and we would have direct access to the throne of grace through his sacrificial death. But this was not normal for that time. Now, look at the request that Jesus makes in the middle here. He says, God, glorify your son. 
That's a, that is extraordinary. Who asks God to glorify him? Who, who would dare come to Yahweh in such a familiar way and say, glorify me? I hope none of you ever does that. <laughs> Don't do it. Who but God can do that, right? And he does it a second time. Drop your eyes down to verse 5. He's going to pray, glorify me together with yourself. Now understand, these are some of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. These are some of the strongest statements, the full equality that God the Son has with God the Father. Why do I say that? Because God is very clear in His Word. He will not share His glory with anyone or anything. He will not share it, and He shouldn't, because He's the Lord, the, the God of the heavens and the earth and the creator of all things. He says it in Isaiah 42. He says it in Isaiah 48. He says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not share my glory with another. And yet here's Jesus asking glory. He's asking for glory. He's saying, he's saying, glorify me, Father. Glorify me together with you. That's an audacious statement, right? Again, who but God can ask such a thing? And then he goes on in verse 5 to make an even more audacious claim, if that's even possible. He speaks of returning to the glory which I had with you before the world came into being. So he's amping it up. Each, state, each request is even more audacious unless he's God, right? So Jesus now is pointing to his pre-existence, his divine eternal nature, which he possessed before coming to the earth and adding to himself a second nature, right? A human nature. He was always God. He was, always had a divine nature, but then he adds a second human nature when he takes on flesh. So while he's on the earth, Jesus clearly understood that there was a time in eternity past, and I know when I say that, it's an oxymoron, a time in eternity past. But he recognizes there's this period of t this, I'm not even going to say it, this time when he shared divine glory with the Father in eternity past. And again, since Yahweh won't share his glory with another being, the implication here in John 17, 5 is one of two things. Either Jesus is a blasphemer, deserving of death, or he is God. And he's recognized as such by Yahweh in the heavens. There, I can't find a third option. He deserves death or he is who he's claiming to be. Now, as I say that, don't be confused. There is still a full understanding on Jesus' part that there is a functional order within the Trinitarian persons. Jesus is not claiming a sense of independent glory. In fact, his entire prayer is going to be a reflection of this idea of continued dependence upon the Father. So he's not seeking, he's not asking the Father to bend to him. He's voicing this single greatest shared purpose of the Godhead, and all of that revolves around this issue of glory. Shared glory. So let's go back to the other important phrase in verse 1. Jesus prays, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son, that what? That the Son may glorify you. That the Son may glorify you. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. Now, we often pray for this, don't we? We pray for God's glory. We should be. We say things like, Father, be glorified in my life. That's a great prayer. Lord, glorify yourself through this ministry. Let the condition of our hearts bring you glory. The challenge is sometimes that can become Christianese. Like it flows off our tongue easily because we've heard so many people pray for it. But what do we actually mean when we're saying that? What do we actually mean? Let me give you a simple definition of glory and what it means to glorify God. And then we'll look to see if Jesus did those things. 
Okay? God's glory is best understood as the perfect, infinite beauty and goodness of all that he is. I'll say it again. God's glory is best understood as the perfect, infinite beauty and goodness of all that he is. It's the sum of all of his divine attributes and his holy character manifested to the world. That's his glory. And each one of his attributes in itself can be said to be glorious. So we, we talk about the glory of his grace or the glory of his power or the glory of his love. And that's all true, but his ultimate glory is the sum of all of that, right? Uh, somebody has uh, described it like God is like a massive, perfect diamond that has too many facets on it to count. And no matter what angle you look at, look at it, you see glory. And there's just too many to count. In fact, you'll spend the rest of infinity trying to find every possible angle to see all the glory that God is. I know that's hard for us in these physical you know, bodies and minds to comprehend, but someday we're actually going to see this. It's amazing to think about. So then here's what it means then when we say we want to glorify God. It means putting all of those attributes and all of that holy character of God on display in such a way that he's reflected in us. This is one of our great responsibilities as worshipers of God, right? That, that through, through the Spirit's work in our lives, that more and more his character, his attributes would be reflected in our lives, in our ministries, in the things that we do, right? In our compassion for people, in the way we love our neighbors. The whole point of, of, us, of us being glory, or that God glorifying himself through us is that we put all that on display so that the people in this world who don't know him will see him in us and marvel at his greatness. We're to put him on display. And that's why our testimony matters, right? In this community, in this place that we live, because we want people to see God in us. So this is what Jesus clearly did when he was on the earth, right? At every moment, every step of his ministry, what was he doing? Pointing people to his Father in heaven, right? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus exhibited before the people this, this, perfect, this perfection, this perfect obedience. But ultimately, he said, look, don't look at me. Look at my Father in heaven. That's what he was doing. He was putting his Father's glory on display. And ultimately, that culminates in the fact that he's going to obey all the way to the point of the cross so that we might know more about God and who he is. But see the reciprocal connection here in verse 1. It says, Father, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. In other words, when you glorify me, Jesus says, that glory is going to return and shine even brighter on you. So at first glance, you may have looked at it and said, well, it looks like Jesus is praying selfishly here. Hey, Lord, glorify me. Like, like it's selfish. But that's not what's happening. His greater concern is that the Father is glorified. Yes, he does ask for glory, but it's only so that it rebounds to his Father in heaven. This reciprocal thing, right? So in essence, he's saying, Father, put the full display of who I am before the world so that your plan will be seen, so that your purpose will be seen, so that your greatness will be seen through me, so that people will praise your name. So he is asking for the glory, but only so that it will rebound to the Father. Very reciprocal because the Father and Son are one. Very reciprocal in nature. Now, if you think about it, a Roman cross is a very strange place to receive glory. That doesn't make sense, right? In that day, the spectacle of crucifixion was like how we might view a public hanging, right? That's not a place of glory. That's usually a place of shame and humiliation. In fact, that's the whole purpose 
for a public execution. But God, he always turns the world on its head. Every time humans think this is the way it is, God says, nope, it's this way. And so it's the cross where he, he, he gives a supreme revelation of glory. You ne- no human being would ever guess that. But God says, this is where you're going to see my glory supremely displayed. And by the way, this is why Paul says the centerpiece of our preaching in the church has to be what? The cross. Christ crucified. In fact, I'll put, this, I'll put the passage on the, on the screen. 1 Corinthians, right? We preach Christ crucified, he wrote. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. Right? We get that, right? We go out there, we preach, we preach the message of the cross, and a lot of people go, whatever. It's foolishness to them. But, look what it says. To the called, to those whom the Father has chosen, to draw to himself, to the elect, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The cross is the power of God because it's the means by which the penalty for sin is satisfied. And it's the wisdom of God, I love this, because it eliminates all human works. It's the wisdom of God because it eliminates all human works as the basis for redemption. Why does that matter? It's because when we get to heaven, not one of us will boast, not one iota, because the work was done by Christ. If we did it, if we could combine our works to it, then we'd have every reason to say, you know what, Jesus, thanks for the sacrifice, but I did a few things too. But this is so that God gets 100% of the glory. That's the wisdom of the cross. And of course, this is why Satan, our great enemy, is relentless in his attacks against the message of the cross. He knows that for many, he can't nullify the message of the cross openly, but very subtly what he can do is deceive people into believing, I can, I can look to the cross, but then also add my works. And by doing that, by bringing those things together, what does he do? He, he, he dilutes God's glory and he keeps people from the truth. So that's what we, here at Oak Hill, we're simply not going to allow it. We're going to continue to stand on the truth of Romans 3.28 and Ephesians 2.8-9. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. That is the power and the wisdom of the cross. That we're saved by faith alone and not by our good works. That make sense? Good. Now there's so much more rich theology in verse 2. Take a look. It says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. Okay, so this is really big picture stuff right here. And once again, this brings us back to the eternal decree that was established before the foundations of the world. And here we see a blatant and obvious reference to his sovereignty, right? This is amazing. At the very moment... The very moment that it appears that Jesus' enemies are about to prevail over him, what is Jesus praying about? His authority and power. That makes no sense, right? Because we see a guy about to be arrested and dragged off and nailed to a cross. But he's like, in the midst of that, he's like, let's talk about authority and power, right? Authority and power granted to him by the Father. And there's two levels of that here. The first is Jesus' authority over all flesh. And all that means is, Jesus has authority over all of humanity. Let me ask the question again. Who can possibly claim that but God? Oh, I have authority over all of humanity. 
Who can that be but God? No human being, certainly, right? What this means is that even at this hour, Jesus has authority over Judas. And he has authority over the Sanhedrin. And he has authority over the mob that's going to call for his death. And he has authority over Pontius Pilate. And while all of these human characters are going to scurry around now, trying to live out their wicked plans for their own self-benefit, unbeknownst to them, what they're doing is fulfilling all that the Father decreed. All that the Father said had to happen. They don't know it, but God is using them to fulfill his great purpose of forgiving sin. Amazing stuff. This is how sovereign God is. And, and we can see, we could fast forward to the end. We know how the story ends, and we know that ultimately in Philippians 2, we know exactly how it is that, God, that Jesus has authority over all flesh, because what happens in the end? It says, God bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, including Judas, including Pontius Pilate, including the Sanhedrin, he has authority over all of humanity. Those who are in heaven, on the earth, and look at that, under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how it ends. Jesus has authority over all flesh. But then the second level of authority and power is even greater, if you can imagine that. And this is where we see God's sovereignty over election so clearly spelled out for us. Go back in your minds for a second. Let's go back before Genesis 1.1. What was God's plan before Genesis 1-1? Before the world was made, the Trinitarian persons of the Godhead determined to save a portion of humanity. This is part of the eternal decree. And God the Father decreed to give that portion of humanity to God the Son as a gift of love. He pledged a bride for his Son, a redeemed people who would reflect his glory and worship and praise him for all eternity. That's what we know about the decree. The father made that pledge to the son and then he wrote down the names of each person in this thing in scripture we call the book of life. That was settled even before Genesis 1.1. That's what scripture tells us. And so even before creation and long before he took on flesh, God the son knew those whom he would save. He knew those who belonged to him whom the father had given to him. And Jesus claims here in John 17 to be the one who then has the power in himself to take that bride, that group of people, and to give them eternal life. Again, who but God can do that? Who but God can grant eternal life to a group of people? Remember, Jesus talked about this back in John 6, so this shouldn't be a surprise to us. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It is not in doubt God is sovereign over this. I know it's hard. I know these are, these are big concepts. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I have questions. Will you come to us? And let's look at the scriptures and let's talk about it. But Jesus, this is certain. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I will do exactly as the Father says. Whatever he gives me, I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing. I will not lose one person, but raise it up on the last day. And now here in verse 2, in this moment of time, this, this amazing moment of the ages, on the way to the Mount of Olives, the son is saying, Father, the hour has come for the crucial step in our plan. Let it come to pass. That's what he's praying. Now, the next time you find yourself, friends, doubting God's love for you, 
The next time you feel unworthy before God, let your minds come back to this text. Not only were you chosen by the Father, but He gave you as a gift to Jesus. You are a gift to Jesus as part of His bride. That makes you incredibly valuable. I know we're unworthy before God. He's so holy and we're so not. But you're incredibly valuable to God to be a part of his bride so that for the joy set before him, Jesus would go to that cross and endure all of that agony and humiliation so that he might bear this painful cost for your sins. You matter to him. You have a father who loves you and who's given you to his son. Amazing stuff. Okay, last thing before we get to the really practical aspects. Let's finish the passage, look in verse 3. To all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, Jesus defines eternal life now, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, when, when we hear eternal life, we think about a measure of time. We think, oh, eternity, and that's great, that's, that's true. But when Jesus defines it, it's more than a quantity of life or a length of life. He says it's a quality of life. And it's defined as knowing God. And he means that in his flesh. He means knowing the Father and knowing him and knowing Jesus, the Christ, whom the Father sent into the world. And so as we say that, we've got to be careful with our, with our Trinitarian doctrine. We don't want to fall into a historical heresy. We don't separate Father, the Father and Jesus into two gods or into two modes of God. Biblically, they are two distinct persons who share one undivided essence or nature of God. So let's make sure we say that. The Bible makes it clear, though, you cannot know the Father is God if you don't know Jesus is God. You cannot break them up and say, well, I believe the Father is God, but Jesus is something else. doesn't work that way. They are one. But the full idea here of knowing God, it comes from the, this root verb in the Greek, gnosko, which means to know on a level far beyond intellectual knowledge, far beyond external knowledge. This is not, Jesus is not describing knowing God as, well, I know a number of facts about God, right? Or I know enough about, about the Bible that I know about God. It's much more than that. This idea of, of knowing is experiential. It's knowing on a deep level, having an intimate communion or relationship with the Lord of the, uh, Lord of the universe, which, again, is mind-blowing, Right? I mean, there, there's, I tried to think of a good parallel, but some of you guys have very, very close friends, right? And, and you talk all the time, and you know each other. I mean, you can finish each other's sentences, right? That type of thing. Uh, you, you, they've shared the, the hard things about their life. You've walked through life with them in some, some good times, some bad times, all of that. Now, apply that to God. I know that doesn't do it justice, but the, the type of closeness and intimacy we can have with God is, is, is even beyond that that type of familiarity, that type of family being. And since God is infinite, what Jesus is saying here is that when we pass into eternity, we will never fully know God. It'll be a, an eternal process of understanding and loving and communing with God for all eternity. And, and it'll still, we'll still never fill it all up. So if you ever thought, I'm going to be bored in heaven, uh-uh. Uh-uh, you're going to keep on learning. Eternal life is not just a time, it's knowing God on that intimate level. Now, verse 4, I've glor I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished or, or finishing. He says it is finished, remember, on the cross. Having finished the work which you have given me to do, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, or 
some translations say, glorify me in your presence with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. So what this is, this is Jesus declaring his desire to be vindicated by his father, to be vindicated. For the father to put his stamp of approval on his completed mission on the earth. And the stamp of approval ultimately is what? His resurrection and ascension. We'll get to that when we get to Easter. But he's asking for that because, listen, the cross is the way home for Jesus. And he knows that. The cross is the way to be restored to the blazing glory he once had with the Father in eternity past. So his prayer is, bring me home, Father. Bring me home. I long to be in your presence at your right hand once again. Is he asking for something he didn't already possess? No. Is he asking for more than he's ever uh, possessed? No. Because God cannot be anything other than who he is. Jesus is God. He will always be God. So all he's asking for is what he's always had. And vindication from the Father and restoration to that, that, that place of glory in his presence. Really, really a beautiful request, right? Okay, let's get practical. In the time we have left, I want to walk through just five observations that I wrote down as I was studying this passage this week. Five things that Jesus does in his prayer in these first five verses that we can apply in our prayer lives. Uh, just five observations. I'll start with this one. I want you to look, I mentioned it earlier, the seamless way that Jesus transitions into prayer. Seamless. You see in this passage how he is, he is fellowshipping with his guys, he is teaching, and he just, like a habit of life, just slips into prayer. It's really a beautiful thing to see, right? I have no doubt that Jesus prayed without ceasing, and we're told to do that as well. But there were times where his thoughts and his actions and his understanding of the hour just caused him to naturally and comfortably begin to pray. What a great habit that would be for us, right? Now, I know there are certain times when we want to set aside time and go into our prayer closet and pray, but what a great habit it would be as we're walking through life to just seamlessly slip into prayer all the time, whether it's out loud or, or quietly in our spirit, but just to pray in that same comfortable, natural way that all of life is, is communing with the Lord. It's not segmented. It's not compartmentalized. The more we can do that, I think the more we get this picture of what it means to have intimate fellowship with God. Number two, let's talk quickly about the posture of Jesus' prayer. What was his posture as he began to pray? Verse one says what? He lifted his eyes to heaven. Now, that's not how we usually pray in the Western world, in the modern world. What do we, what do we tend to do? We bow our heads and we close our eyes. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, right? But I just want to give you a warning this morning. We should never do, we should never engage in any religious activity without understanding why we do it. So why do you close your eyes and bow your head? Do you know why? Some of the greatest men in Scripture did not pray that way. They prayed very differently from that. Abraham went prostrate. He went down on his face before the Lord, right? Moses lifted his hands to the Lord. Elijah and Ezra bowed their knees, got on their knees and prayed. Daniel liked to face Jerusalem when he prayed, right? Sometimes we see people in the Bible standing as, as they pray and doing both, lifting their hands and looking up to the sky. So it's a good thing to consider all of that and to develop a conviction. Why do I pray the way I pray? 
be able to defend it, to know what you, why you do what you do, and then maybe even to consider changing your posture at times as a way to jumpstart your heart and to, to even follow the example of the Lord and just say, you know what, maybe I'm doing this bow my head, close my eyes things, this sort of remote religious exercise, and maybe I should look up to the heavens. But that's a conviction we should all arrive at. There's, nothing, there's no wrong answer, but just make sure you know why you do what you do. Make sense? Ooh, it got quiet with that one. <laughs> Number three. Note the level of simplicity and intimacy in Jesus' prayer. As I said earlier, because he opened up the Holy of Holies by his death on the cross, we too get to enter into the throne of grace. And, and the Bible says with boldness we can come, right? Because the way's been opened. We can approach God as our Abba. As I said, don't take that for granted. John Owen, one of my Puritan heroes, described this, this privilege. He called it the great fountain privilege of all Christians to be able to come to the throne of grace and say, Father. And I think he has that right. So we should come to, to our Heavenly Father like a child who, you know, how a child comfortably approaches his or her earthly daddy. That's how we should be, feel in terms of coming to the Lord. We can speak freely and simply and conversationally with him, as Jesus does in, in our text. We should feel the freedom to pour out our hearts to him, to share with him when we feel joyful and when we're struggling and when we're in pain and to confess sin and then to, to thank him for Jesus and cleansing us from the penalty of sin. Prayer for us should be simple and straightforward, not filled with this, this Christianese that we tend to add on to our prayers, right? So that we can sound more godly than maybe we are. Simple and straightforward. Our prayers don't have to be long either. We don't have to tell God things he already knows over and over and over again. In fact, Jesus warns against that. He say, warns against using many words and thoughtless repetition. We shouldn't pray in order to impress others, right? So that the attention is brought to ourselves. So make your prayers raw and truthful and with appropriate emotion. Don't hold back things that, about yourself that God already knows about you. Some people do that. They actually hide from God in prayer. Don't do it. It should be a time of intimate communion. You should enjoy God in prayer. I know that's, that's, for some of you that may sound weird. Enjoy the blessing and the privilege that he's given you to come to his throne and call him Abba. Now there is a balance with this. We've got to make sure we don't, we don't get, because we have a tendency to swing the pendulum from one side to the other. When we come to our Father, we don't forget his holiness, Right? or his majesty. We're able to call him Abba, but that doesn't excuse being irreverent or being morally sloppy when we come to him. So we find that balance. We recognize two things. God is high and lifted up. He is utterly holy, but we also know that he stoops low to hear his children pray because he loves us. So find that balance in your prayer life. Number four, we should always pray that God's will and not ours be done. Now, maybe you Maybe you recognize this in today's text. Maybe not because it's not obvious. But Jesus prayed for a bunch of things that were certain to happen. Think about that for a second. He prayed for things that were certain to come to pass. Right? As the Son of God, he knew what God had decreed. He knew that the Father had given him this portion of humanity, yet he still prayed. 
Jesus prayed the Father would be glorified. He already knew that God would be glorified through him. He already knew all of these things. He prayed that the Father's will would would bring all these things to pass, even though the outcome was never in doubt. You're like, well, why? That doesn't make sense. We often object to this. We're like, if God is so sovereign, why pray? But Jesus does it, and he's God. And it's not just as an example for us. It is an example, but it's more than that. It's effective prayer. But he prays for certain things. What we often overlook is that God sovereignly ordains both the means of prayer and the end result of prayer. So I know this is hard for our brains to get wrapped around, but God ordains when you pray. He brings you, causes you, I'll even use the C word, cause, causes you, brings you, ordains you to prayer and then says, I'm going to use your prayers as a means of accomplishing my will. Right? So what that means is your prayers actually do matter, that they really do make a difference. Here's an example. We have a great example in Scripture. In Daniel 9, the prophet Daniel is reading another prophet, which in and of itself is wild, right? He's reading Jeremiah and reading about the fact that 70 years have been declared for Israel's captivity in Babylon. And Daniel like does the math and goes, oh, the time is drawing near. Like in my lifetime, this is going to happen. So what could he say? If he just trusted in God's sovereignty, he could have said, Cool, I'm just going to sit back, sip an iced tea, and watch all this happen. But he does the opposite. Daniel 9.3 says, Because of that, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications. Right? He knew the certain outcome, and that caused him to go and pray with greater passion than ever before that God would bring that to pass. Right? Remember, the goal when you pray is not to just, I don't just go to get everything I want. It's to, first of all, commune with the Lord in relationship and ultimately then to bring all of your desires and your requests in line with his certain will. And when when we bring our requests in line with his will, it will happen because it's God's will. I know, I keep doing that. Okay, but that's what we do in prayer. But don't forget the relationship. I mean, that... That's the one thing. That's what Jesus is is exemplifying for us, the relationship with the Father, right? Even as he prays for certain things to happen. Last one, number five. This is obvious. We should always have the glory of God in mind as we pray. Always. And we need this reminder because sometimes in our prayer lives, it just becomes a jumbled assortment of self-focused requests and sometimes not even necessarily godly requests. So we should remember that even as we bring the details to him, and we should because he cares for us, we always have to remember that God is at work in much higher ways than we can even imagine. And ultimately, everything he's doing in this world is to bring glory to him. So in our requests and our questions and our pleadings, we always want to keep in mind that the thing that we want most is for him to be glorified. Even if that means our suffering. Even if that means hard things for us, ultimately that's what we want. That, our, that, that we would show his glory in our lives, in the way we handle suffering, in the way we handle joyful things as well, in the way we handle success and in struggles. That, him, that he would be glorified through us. The ultimate purpose of our lives on the earth, you guys, is to reflect his glory and enjoy him forever. It really can be summed up like that. That's our ultimate purpose. So we're only five verses in and already our minds are blown, but there's so much more to go. 
next Sunday, we'll start talking about Jesus praying for his disciples. And until then, I want to give you just a minute or so to do what we just talked about, and that is to, to commune with the Lord. And, and maybe, maybe I've reframed it for you about how you can have a relationship with them, how you can pray. So think about these principles as you go. I'm not even going to tell you to bow your head this morning. I'm going to let you do that. So you pray as you see fit, but let's commune with the Lord. And in just a minute or so, Grant will pull us out. Let's go to prayer.